Hello and welcome to We're Watching What? I'm your host Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and tons of movies to review this week. It is going to be Christmas, independent of whether or not you celebrate. Lots of movies drop on Christmas. Some of the most anticipated films of the year are going to drop this Christmas, so lots of choices to make. Also, a quick reminder that Promising Young Woman technically also comes out on Christmas, and a correction that last week I mentioned One Night in Miami is coming out. It doesn't actually come out on Amazon Prime, at least, until January, so that's going to be a post-New Year viewing for you. And all of these will be spoiler-free reviews. Without further ado, here's We're Watching What? Get ready for a supersized holiday review session. There are so many films coming out on Christmas Day, and many of them will actually be available for you at home, and so I'm going to go over over a suggested viewing order for some of these because you only have so many hours in the day and I think some of them you will want to see one either to avoid spoilers or two just because you're really excited for them some of them you might want to avoid so let's get into it let's start off with soul oh wow okay this is the latest feature animated film from Pixar. It is from Pete Docter, and I always just like to be honest and upfront that I have a lot of friends who work at Pixar, so I tend to be a little biased towards their films. I think we can all objectively agree that they do some of the best work out there, but it's always a little odd of an experience for me just because I know so many people who work on them for so long, and so I I don't want to be critical of their work, you know? It's, it's tough to, but I'm always willing to be, if need be, like Onward, which came out also earlier this year, was not my favorite of their films. I, a lot of potential but but for soul i truly think this is one of the best films of the year and i'm so glad that it is coming out this year i think it's so utterly poignant this year for a couple of different reasons obviously the whole fact that there's a black protagonist in it and that this is the year that we are dealing with black lives matter and you know opportunity and what is the value of a human life and should not all human lives be valued equally that is a, a greater meta question that Soul does not necessarily deal with in the context of Black Lives Matter, but I think that as an adult viewing it, that's something that will cross your mind during the process. Also, as an adult viewing it, get ready for some painful introspection moments, like particularly in light of COVID as well, because this film is all about opportunity and what inspires you and pursuing your dreams. And I feel like this year, especially, that has been something that has been so particularly challenging for all of us. You know, this is the year that if you're lucky, right, you missed out on opportunities. If you're unlucky, then far worse happened to you. So we should consider ourselves lucky that we can, you know, hopefully in 2021 continue to pursue our dreams. But that was a that was a painful moment for me. It feels like an introspective continuation of Pete Doctor's exploration of what makes us tick as human beings, right? Inside Out is dealing with our emotions. This is dealing with sort of the core of our beings. What drives us as people and all packed into a kid-friendly movie. Like, come on, that's not fair. It's not fair that they're able to do this. I just, it, it's also really interesting to me that Soul is a film that has an adult male single, essentially, protagonist. That's not something I feel like you see in animated films a lot, and that doesn't really impact most of the journey, but it was something that stood out to me that I was like, oh, as an adult who does not have kids watching this film, it really, I think, spoke to me extra. And for me personally, you know, I am about as old as Pixar Animation Studios or have been on that journey with them to watch the films go from being about toys to being about, you know, parenthood to being about finding your purpose in life. I'm like, oh, geez, this is a journey that I have been on with them for the majority of my life. How do they keep getting us like this? And then for the adults who are watching this who do have kids, good luck between this and Coco explaining to your children death in the afterlife. Yeah, 
Uh, also, so the, the plot of Soul is, I don't want to talk too much about it, honestly. I think you should just watch the film. So if, if you've seen the trailer, yeah, that's that's that. But just, just go into this movie open-minded. And it is kid-friendly, right? Like, it's not going to scare children. I think there are a lot of parts that are very, very kid-friendly. There are a lot of just sort of silly jokes that I laughed at. There are also a lot of just New York-specific jokes that I was so happy about. So shout out to the writers there. As I mentioned, Pete Doctor is the director of it. It's written by Pete Doctor, Mike Jones, and Kemp Powers. And also Kemp Powers has One Night in Miami coming out, which also I should correct, One Night in Miami does not come out on Amazon until January. So you're gonna have to wait a little bit to watch the one-two punch of Kemp Powers. But the voice cast is Jamie Foxx, Tina Fey, Felicia Rashad, Questlove, Angela Bassett, David Diggs, Graham Norton, Rachel House, Alice Braga, Richard Iwadi, like what what more can you ask for, really? I'm sure if I looked really hard, there are things I could pick apart about it, but this is one of those films where I just, I enjoyed it. I went on an emotional journey, like a really, really powerful emotional journey during, and I just, I cannot think of a reason not to watch this film. So I think this is my only five out of five for this year. Please watch Soul. It's going to be available on Disney Plus starting Christmas Day absolutely worth your time. I'm going to take a quick break and be right back. And then next up is changing gears a bit. It's Wonder Woman 1984. And I was ridiculously excited for this film in a different way than I was excited for Soul. I think they speak to two very different parts of my fandom. But I'm not gonna lie, I had a lot of apprehensions also going into Wonder Woman 1984 because they kept showing Chris Pine in the trailers and I am not gonna spoil anything about it because I, you've waited long enough, I've waited long enough for this film. It was going to be really hard to follow up Wonder Woman. And I should also say, you have to have seen Wonder Woman in order to see Wonder Woman 1984. You don't have to have seen Justice League or the other DC films, but you do have to have seen Wonder Woman. This is definitely a sequel that just sort of jumps right in. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that, but it is interesting how DC is structuring their cinematic universe versus Marvel, where like, if you miss one thing from Marvel, you are screwed for the rest of the films. But with this, it's like, no, Wonder Woman's kind of its own thing. Sometimes she shows up in other stuff. I love Gal Gadot. I think she and Patty Jenkins have a really good working relationship. Also, clearly, Patty Jenkins, if there's anything I took away from this film, is that Patty Jenkins really loves airplanes and flying, and I think that's going to make her a great fit for Rogue Squadron. Maybe a little too much into the airplanes for this one. I know it fits because Steve Trevor was a pilot and the invisible jet, all that stuff. But it was a little, it's a very long film. It's a two and a half hour film. And normally I would not complain in a time like this when I'm like, oh, all we want is new things. All we want is these big blockbuster things. But there are things it could have trimmed. Also, it's a film I do wish I'd seen in theaters. There were lots of moments in it that I think, especially if you are a fan of the comics and you are familiar with Wonder Woman, you would just sort of like, it's it's a moment in the theater that I would probably scream and punch the person next to me because I'd be with another super fan. But watching it on my own on a sort of average size screen, it doesn't quite have the same impact. And that is a bummer, but I'd so appreciate that they are trying to make it safe for people and giving people something to enjoy this holiday season. I appreciate the move. Let's get into the film itself. Again, no spoilers, but doesn't quite live up to the original. And that is very understandable. I wrote about four pages of notes. So when I do go into the sort of in-depth discussion, I will have a lot of questions. It's fine. It's a fun movie. I enjoyed it. Again, it's a little bit long. I like the idea of Pedro Pascal and Kristen Wiig as villains. You know, they are, that's not really a spoiler if you know anything about Wonder Woman or have seen the trailers at all. But it is a little odd to me that 
DC in general, I feel like, at least on screen, has a better pool of villains to draw from than, let's say, Marvel, right? And Marvel does this thing where their villains tend to be disposable per movie, whereas DC, you've got these sort of arch enemies. And, and Marvel has that too in the comics, but they've just sort of chosen to structure their friction differently, whereas DC, like, they've been doing this thing where they've had these big bads who are only in one movie per thing. And I'm just like, I don't know if that's working for them. Like, I like having, I like Batman having a Joker. And so when you tell me that Cheetah, who is basically Wonder Woman's, one of her best arch nemesis, is being introduced in this film, I want Cheetah to be spectacular. And I want Cheetah to match Wonder Woman. And this is where it got a little weird. So Kristen Wiig, I think, does a fine and a good job. There are some issues I have in general in this film with the female characters because it is a film driven by female characters. And I'm like, just because it's a film, quote, aimed at women, it's not aimed at women. It's aimed at all audiences. But do we have to have so many plot lines about shoes and clothing? And, you know, it's just like, can we move past that? And does Kristen Wiig's character have to be this sort of like, a bumbling female stereotype. These are bigger trope questions, I think, and Wonder Woman 1984 navigates them fine, but I just, I don't know if it had to be Kristen Wiig in this role. Like, I, at this point, cannot imagine somebody else aside from Gal playing Wonder Woman on screen, but for Kristen Wiig, I was like, okay, well, you're casting this comedian, essentially, somebody who has these comedic chops. Are you going to have her use them? And she played it she played it straight basically which is fine right that's that's fine i just i don't know what i was expecting for it and at the end of it i was like i don't feel like this had to be kristen wig so to, th that leaves me feeling like oh could there have been somebody else who would have been better in this role which is a shame because i really like kristen wig and pedro pascal as maxwell lord who i would say is the savior of streaming these days with mandalorian and this he was fine you know, he was also good. I, I think there are going to be a lot of fun parallels to his character and certain other TV personalities that have power. You know, draw your own conclusions. But And then the other thing I would say is the action felt a little weightless to me in terms of the fights and the choreography. Also, my biggest question is why is her skirt still so short? you think we'd learned our lesson, but, but I still had ooh and ah moments during. It was enjoyable. I can't imagine a reason not to watch this if you already have HBO Max at this point, especially because you've been waiting probably so long for this. It's not going to let you down in that sense. And I think if we had gone to see it in theaters, it also wouldn't have let us down. I just don't think it would have been as exciting as the first one. But again, that is tough to do in a sophomore effort. So Overall, still enjoyable. I think a lot of the joy from the first one still carries over. I think there are a lot of things that they, I wish they'd done differently. But again, we'll save that for a later date. And you're going to watch it anyway, and I do hope you enjoy it. I personally am going to give it 3.7 out of 5. And now let's quickly talk about viewing order. Because Wonder Woman, big action, fun, punchy thriller, right? And then Soul is this very introspective at times, also fun and zany at times, but the overall feeling you will have after Soul is very different than the overall feeling you will have after Wonder Woman 1984. So I'm not going to prescribe a viewing order for you exactly, but what I'm going to say is, I'll actually send an anecdote. One time I did a Ryan Gosling double feature and I watched Crazy Stupid Love and I watched Blue Valentine back to back. And I watched Crazy Stupid Love, which was the lighter of the two films first, and then I went into Blue Valentine and I personally felt that that was a mistake because there was a lot of crying involved. I was very heartbroken at the end. I needed the pick-me-up afterwards. So if, that, if you are that type of person, if you want the fun sort of end on a high note feeling, watch Soul first because I think it will ask more of you. Soul asks more of you as an audience than Wonder Woman does. If you are someone who needs to get it out of the way and is just like, okay, I'm gonna go on this journey and then I'm gonna do something fun and sort of a little bit mindless at the end, 
that's the do soul and then wonder woman if you are someone who's like no i one want to avoid spoilers and two and you want to end your day on a sort of thoughtful and contemplative note then i would do wonder woman first and get your spectacle done and then i would do soul and i would sit with your feelings for a while because you will need some time afterwards but both are good options. I'm, I'm really just excited for people to be able to see both of them. So then let's move to some of the other choices you have. But those are the two big ones. As of the 23rd, if you want to get a little bit of a head start, Sylvie's Love is out and that's on Amazon Prime. And it's written and directed by Eugene Ash. It stars Tessa Thompson, Namdi Asamuga, Eva Longoria, Aja Naomi King, Wendy McClendon-Covey, Jemima Kirk, and Tone Bell. And okay, I think it's a good film. It's about this character Sylvie and her relationship with a character named Robert and the course of their relationship over a couple of years. And I, I have a couple qualms with this one. I think the actors do a decent job in it. But there are a couple things that I wish had gone a little bit differently. I, you know, this is a film with the woman's name in the title, and I really do wish that we had focused more on her storyline. The film sort of splits between the two sort of main relationship holders, and he's a jazz saxophonist. And so we've got this movie, Sylvie's Love, we've got Soul, we've got One Night in Miami, essentially, and then we've got Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, all of which have come out in a span of a couple weeks of each other. And they all feature Black protagonists who are heavily involved in music. And while I totally understand, you know, Sylvie's Love is a period piece. It's set in 1957. I get for these period pieces, especially that at the time, there were not necessarily a lot of careers available or glamorous careers available to Black people. But I do wish that we would start telling stories that were not just about Black musicians. Like, there have to be other relationship stories you can explore that do not require music as a part of it. And I know that music is a great sort of parallel expression for emotions and feelings, and that soul heavily relies on that. You know, it's another form of artistic expression, but I just am feeling like it's becoming a trope and that I would love to see more films that explore other careers for their protagonists that also feature Black protagonists. I would say the same thing applies to something like, you know, it's a totally different ballgame, but the sort of Lifetime original movies, right? Like, the women in those are always, always a writer or a baker. And it's like, no, there are other careers available to women in general. Can we not show them? Can one of them not be a lawyer or something like that, right? Like, can one of them not be a doctor? There are other things that we need to start exploring in terms of representation. But again, I acknowledge that setting them in a certain historical time period does sort of constrain the abilities of these characters. But what I liked about Sylvie's Love is that Tessa Thompson's character, Sylvie, is somebody who is trying to break a glass ceiling in terms of job availability. Like very early on, she states like, oh, I want to be a TV producer. I didn't even know, you know, that women and colored women is what she says, not me, what she says, uh, could be TV producers. Like that's a, just a pipe dream to her. And I'm like, yeah, great. Let's let's explore more on that front. Let's just not have everyone be a jazz musician. So to build off of that, I wish we had followed just Sylvie's perspective on this. Like I didn't need Robert's perspective. I thought her story was really strong and that we could see his coming into her life and through her eyes, but trying to give him sort of equal screen time to her, it just, it didn't work for me. And there were a couple of moments where I was like, oh, this is definitely written by a man, a well-intentioned man, but written by a man nonetheless about a female protagonist. The other thing is like, I wish there had been just a little bit more chemistry between the leads. I just didn't quite feel it. And for something that relies so heavily on you investing in their relationship, 
I was just like, oh, I, I just, I wanted a fire there. And maybe that's just naive on my part. And, and I also acknowledge that not all relationships are just fiery and passionate. Like you need trust and you need friendship and you need other things as part of it. But the way this story in particular is structured, it feels like that should have been a bigger factor in it. Overall, I think it's a fine film, you know, I think especially coming out on streaming, getting a head start if you want to watch it today or tomorrow and, and then watch the other films on actual Christmas, like that's that's totally fine. It's it's a decent movie. It's just not an amazing movie. And I think there are maybe some major changes that could have been made that could have pushed it over the edge, but that would make it a completely different movie. So I personally am only going to give it 3.7 out of 5. And then we get to a duo of films that I'm just like, people must be stopped. So next is The Midnight Sky, and it stars George Clooney, and it's directed by George Clooney, and it's on Netflix, and it's out on the 23rd. And this is one of those movies where I'm just like, I swear to God, if this is just George Clooney directing himself in the Arctic, I will lose my mind. And that is actually pretty much what it was. So this is another film where I'm like, this would have been better if it had been told from another character's perspective. Much like Sylvie's love, I wish they'd just focused on her perspective. This one, I wish it had been told from the perspective of another set of characters instead of trying to split their time. This whole sort of trying to split your time and compromise thing ends up in a compromised vision. The premise of it is basically George Clooney is this lone scientist trying to contact a crew of astronauts after something catastrophic has happened on Earth. These astronauts are coming back from uh, an exploration on Jupiter where they're trying to see, or a moon of Jupiter where they're trying to see if that can sustain life. So you've got George Clooney, you've, you've got Felicity Jones, David Oyelowo, Tiffany Boone, Damian Beecher, Kyle Chandler. Like, it's a decent cast. And I, uh... I wanted it to be either like a sci-fi epic or a horror film or something, but then it also starts to do this sort of self-indulgent flashback thing where you see young George Clooney, and I will, the only compliment I will give it in that respect is they at least cast someone as young George Clooney instead of trying to do the creepy CG de-aging thing. They cast Ethan Peck, who is I think the grandson of Gregory Peck, as young George Clooney. I was like, okay, thank you for not doing the creepy de-aging or the creepy CG version thing. Like, I appreciate your commitment on that front. The rest of the film did not appreciate. I was just really bored, honestly, is what it comes down to. It's a two-hour movie. It's like George Clooney is trapped on this Arctic base with like a young girl gets left behind and I'm between this and the next film, which is News of the World with Tom Hanks, I'm like, please stop doing this whole like, oh, we're going to soften these older classic actors and put them with like a young girl and that'll be the storyline. And, and that's why there will be emotional stakes. Like, I don't need this. I don't need that. I need good actors. I need good stories. I don't just need these people who are considered likable, right? Like you're just cashing in on the appeal of the star power of these actors and not necessarily their acting abilities. I don't even know if George Clooney acted in this. I think he was just being George Clooney. I think everyone else is sort of trying. Everyone on the space station is trying. But those sequences were so slow and bloated. And I was just like, I don't care. I don't care at this point. I didn't care about this movie. D even though this is available to you, don't watch this movie. Like, just save your time. Watch all the other things. I'm a fan of sci-fi. I'm a fan of drama in general. Like, put something in space, great. Put something post-apocalyptic, great. Put something as, like, a deep relationship drama. I'm also on board with that, but do it well. So, pass on this one. I'm only gonna give it two out of five. And then my last film for this week is called News of the World, and I'm not 100% sure how or when this is going to be available on streaming, but it comes out technically on Christmas. It stars Tom Hanks. It's set after the end of the Civil War. Uh, basically, Tom Hanks is a 
early news reporter. He goes around from town to town and reads the news to locals. And early in his journey, he comes across a young girl, played by Helena Zingle, who basically has been raised by Native Americans, and so she does, she's white, and so she doesn't speak English, and he, you know, the, her tribe has been wiped out, and so he, he takes her to town and then, like, gets stuck with her, basically, and it's their sort of on-the-road adventures. And I just cannot believe we made a movie about a white girl instead of a native girl. Like, this just feels very tone-deaf to me. Using a white character to teach indigenous culture in 2020, it's just, it's not necessary. And this film was not good enough in any way, shape, or form to justify any of that. This is a film for your dad, if you have a white dad, which I have a white dad. This is a dad film, as I call it, and much like, I think, Greyhound earlier this year, not very good. Now, if I had to pick between this and The Midnight Sky, I would pick this, but that's not saying much. If they had made this a Western thriller and that the plot did not center around the fact that she had been raised by Native Americans and that she didn't speak English and that, you know, all of this basically sort of appropriation stuff happening, and there's absolutely a way they could have done that because basically, this is a mild spoiler, but she comes from a German family and so she didn't even necessarily speak English anyway, so why not just have it be he stumbles upon a person who doesn't speak English? They don't have to be raised by indigenous people, they can just be a character who has a language barrier. Then it might have been an acceptable or better film, but the fact that it was just like, you know what's totally okay to do right now? This. Just, that's a, that's a hard pass for me. I, I can't in good conscience recommend this film. Also, it's just not like a great film. It's also two hours. It also feels long and bloated. There are just so many changes they could have made that would have made it fine. You know, it would have at least elevated it to fine. But like, even in terms of an action film, because it's directed by Paul Greengrass, who did the Jason Bourne films, like, it's just, it's a pass. It's also a pass. And I think it's just completely trying to cash in on the fact that people like Tom Hanks. And much like George Clooney in The Midnight Sky, Tom Hanks isn't like really acting in this. He's just being Tom Hanks with a little bit of a twang. <sighs> so I personally am only going to give this, I'll be a little more generous with this one because at least it had a plot that made sense. Sort of tried, but it's still not going to be a recommendation for me. So I'm only going to give this 2.6 out of 5. So lots to choose from, thankfully, and I hope this has helped equip you for your upcoming viewing choices. And that is it for the episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or even consider subscribing.